0: Absolutely. Well, if you're absolutely good, absolutely turn in your Bibles tonight to the seventh chapter of the book of Nehemiah as we continue our study here in this amazing book. I want to draw your attention backwards a little bit to verse 16 of chapter 6 as we begin tonight. And it happened that when all of our enemies heard it, and if you remember last time as as we began to really kind of look at the completion of the wall, Um, This was not a work of Nehemiah's construction expertise. It was not a work of the people that were inside of the city's masonry expertise. This was a work of God. And the work that was done ultimately gave glory to God. Notice what it says, moving on in the rest of verse 16. And when our enemies heard of it, and all of the nations around us saw these things, saw what things? They saw the wall go up. They, they saw a defensible city. They they saw it begin to take shape and look like that particular city. Uh, and, and I want to keep in mind as we go through the evening tonight that that city's not that big. Uh, it's not even a square mile, uh, the total of that. And so it's a relatively small city, but we're going to find out it has a massive amount of people now that are going to be blessed by it. And so it says that when all the nations saw these things, they were very disheartened in their own eyes. They saw an opportunity. They thought they were going to get Jerusalem. They believed that the Jews were done and that they could come in and do whatever they want. And so it was that when they saw that with their own eyes, that they perceived that this work was done by our God. Amen. It's a lesson in life for us. When we undertake to do God's things, God's way, and when we live our lives to His glory and to His glory alone, then people around us see the results of the things that are done. And as we give glory to God and say, apart from God doing this, it isn't getting done, and then it gets done, God receives the glory. And that's true with everything about you in Christ Jesus as Lord. And so remember that as we now move on to what seems like a very long chapter that has almost no meaning and purpose. People look at chapter 7 and go, man, this this may be the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. And and at first glance, as you look at it, you're going, man, 70-something verses. We're going to get them all tonight. Just want you to know. As you as you look at this chapter, you're going, well, oh, it's just an endless list of names. Let me preface this. When God built the walls, was he building the walls for the sake of building the walls? Was God building the walls to show off his construction expertise? Was he building the walls to show off or showcase simply Nehemiah's leadership skills? No. Was God building the walls so that, you know, there would simply now be a safe place for everybody to dwell? The answer to that's also no. There's a very specific reason that God rebuilt those walls. That is God's holy city. That is the place where God would be worshipped. And he did so for the people that would worship the Lord. Ministry is people. God's work is about people. It's not about buildings. It's not about money. It's not about books. It's about people. And so this very long list of people is extremely important. Not so much that we pick out every single name and try and find the Hebrew equivalent in the English and go, well, this means he was like that or like this but that God so cared about all of these people that were engaged in this work that he takes time to basically draw attention to the better part of 40,000 of them. God cares about people. And if we build buildings and it's not for the sake of people, we've built buildings in vain. If we write books and it's not for the sake of people to come to Christ, then we've written the book in vain. If we undertake programs and we simply begin to feed everybody, and it's not about just filling their stomach, but rather about the person that's being filled, then we have missed the mark. God is concerned with people. Every last person. For His word declares to us that for God so loved the world. Amen? The world, not the dirt not the rocks, not the mountain, not the oceans, not the dolphins, not the whales, not the norwals, not the platypi, if that's platypus's portal I don't know. He came to this earth for people, for God so loved the people of the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And tonight, God is now going to protect what He has done and He's going to lay out very succinctly, uh, this very long chapter that has the purpose, I believe, of drawing attention to the meaning uh, that each one of us really has. God cares about you. God cares about me. God cares about us. He knows where you are. He knows what you've done. He knows where you're going. He has a perfect plan for your life. And he wants you to know that he knows. And so, tonight, chapter 7, would you pray with me? Father, we invite you. And you just take this time and these words which you authored. And Lord, so important are they that you repeated them almost verbatim in the book of Ezra. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us by your spirit through your word. Help us to grow and to be strengthened. Lord, help us to be encouraged tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, and it says, after the wall is finished, so it's very clear the context of the last chapter, and I had set the doors and the gates. The gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites were appointed. And so the walls are now completed. And, and really there's a spiritual principle here. As we have already seen, it, it's one thing to pray, and that needs to be the first thing that we do. But once we've prayed, we need to get busy. Amen? But we don't just work for the sake of working. We're not just engaged in things because God wants to keep us busy. There's a point to that work. And so when we, we think of the biblical principle, we're actually going to get to as we study the book of Ephesians there in chapter 6. It says, having therefore done all to stand, stand. And so Nehemiah has now done all to stand. He, he's taken this stance for the Lord, because of the Lord, because of his kingdom, because of the things that the Jewish people represented to the world. And so they're doing that. They did the hard thing. Having done all to stand, as Ephesians 6 says there in the 13th verse, means that we're willing to work hard. We're willing to give it our all. We're willing to invest our time and our talent and our treasure, everything that we are, to the purpose for which God has us on this earth. One could have looked at this construction project when Nehemiah got there and said, this is crazy. Let's just all go home because this is dumb. Here's this city sitting on a hill. Here, here's this this place that if you really looked at it, you go, I don't even know that that's such a great place to live. It sits between two valleys, between the Cadrone Valley and between the Hinnom Valley, and, and is there's a couple of little tiny creeks that kind of work their way through there. It, it's not particularly beautiful. It wasn't a giant forest. It wasn't some place that you would look at it and you know it's not like you drive up to Lake Tahoe and go, man, I want to live here. They would have gotten to Jerusalem and kind of scratched their heads a little bit going, that's the holy city of God? And I think God did that for a purpose. Because when Abraham came to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, when the Lord died on Calvary's cross some 500 years after this, it wasn't some building like you see today, like the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. It wasn't the... The, the city that you, you look at today and you go, wow, this is really an amazing sight. It was just about like when Jesus came in, a, a lowly place that was kind of off the beaten path. It was at the crossroads. There was some traveling that could be done from place to place, but it was rather nondescript. And so God draws attention to himself by taking attention away from everything else. That's why sometimes I think church can be misleading, because sometimes church is just about church. And if you've done much traveling, if, you, if you've seen especially some of the cathedrals in Europe and you look at them, it's just like you could sit there and just be enamored with the building. There doesn't have to be a thing that happens with regard to God's spirit in that place doing any kind of work. And you just kind of sit there and go, wow, this is really amazing. God's not willing that he would share his glory with anyone or anything. And so this is kind of a plain Jane place. But they had done what God had asked them to do. And now what God really wants to protect is the people that are going to be there. And I want to give you, as we go through this, a little bit of history. And the first thing that we see Nehemiah do is the first thing every good leader needs to do. Verse two, it says, and I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. And along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, he was two things. Notice the qualifications. Doesn't say anything about a PhD. Doesn't say anything about, you know, all of the degrees that he has of any kind. Doesn't say that he was a superior government official with lots of experience. It says two things about these two men. And they are the same two things that are important today if someone wants to really be used of the Lord. They were, he was faithful. And he was a man who feared God more than most. Two very simple things. But they are absolutely critical in leadership. Because if God is not first, if he isn't the focal point of what we do, then I would say to you, you're just doing religious work. There's a lot of religious work. Buddhists do religious work. People who practice Shintoism and Hinduism do religious work. The work of the Lord is a different thing, because the work of the Lord is not about prospering a religion, it's about bringing forth a relationship. And because it's about a relationship and not a religion, we need to be faithful to the one who has called us, and we need to absolutely fear him above all other things. In other words, what he's really saying is, It's really not uh, in God's best interest to appoint people who don't have a reverence for God himself. That's why I've shared with you, you can go to all the seminaries you want. You can have multiple PhDs in theology and still be of absolutely zero value to God. Because you can have an intellectual understanding of God. You, You can be very well prepared and extremely well studied. But if you're not faithful to God... And if you do not fear God, you are not going to be used by God in any way, shape, or form that's going to be meaningful for his kingdom. You might have an earthly business, but you won't be used to the Lord. And so one of his first official acts, Nehemiah appoints two assistants, his brother Hananiah and Hananiah, who are in charge basically of the palace, the fortress area, the temple area really is what they would be looking at at that particular point in time. And so Why was Nehemiah convinced? Because he'd seen them in action. You cannot come to these two conclusions that someone is faithful and someone fears God unless you have witnessed them live out their life. That's why Paul, as he would write the pastoral epistle, specifically the letter to Timothy, the first letter, he says a man of God must first be found faithful. Why? Why? Because the work of God isn't one for which you're going to be uh, demonstratively compensated. It's not one that you're going to end up with a lot of prestige. You're not going to wander around the earth. Most people don't become Billy Graham. They don't become Chuck Smith. Most people who engage in the work of the ministry are going to finish their lives out and very few people are going to know that they were ever on this earth. Handful of folks. But they need to be faithful. Faithful. Because there are times that you wake up as a pastor and you go, God, is anything happening? Am I having any effect? There are times when you you teach Bible studies and you go, did anybody listen? Did Did they really get it? Am I making a difference for your kingdom? You see, you ask those questions because we're human beings. And you look at things like empty seats. And and you wonder, you know, God, you know, it was more full last week. If you're not being faithful to God, you can look at those things and become instantaneously discouraged. I've sat with pastors that pastor huge churches that have gone through those types of thought processes. But they have to remain faithful. It's God's word. It's his plan. He does what he wants to do. And it's up to him to bring forth fruit. And so these men were found faithful. Dr. Bob Jones wisely said the greatest ability in ministry is the dependability of the minister. Very wise. Because you don't get up and all of a sudden there's a whole long list of things laid out before you. Man, this is just going on. You don't get quarterly reports of, you know, how many X number of people or, you know, it's not dollars and cents. God's spirit's at work sometimes in the things that we cannot see at all. People that you may have touched that you may never even know until you get to heaven. Faithfulness. Not everybody is called to be a Nehemiah. Not everybody is called to be a Hananiah. Not everybody is called to be in that form of leadership. But everyone can have a place in God's kingdom. And that's the reason for the rest of this chapter. Because God is going to draw attention to people from every walk of life, every geographic location. He's going to name a bunch of places that are kind of off the map, so to speak. Notice the second group here in verse 3. And I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors and appoint the residents of Jerusalem to act as guards. Everyone on a regular watch, and some will serve at sentry posts, and some on the foot of their own homes. Here's the point the enemy is trying to destroy the kingdom of God. And as leadership and as people who care about the things of God, we are to guard the things that God is doing. There are people that would love to destroy this church. I've gotten emails from some of them. Uh, As I understand it, we had a little excitement while I was gone. You know, we have things that pop up from time to time. Things that come to where the enemy would love to destroy and to kill and to maim and to completely take down the work that has already been done. And so there's some wisdom in appointing people to this position that's called here a gatekeeper. And I think that one of the most applicable positions that we can look at in our day and time are deacons and elders in a church. There are those who are watching over the flock of God, who are saying, you know what, no wolf is getting into this sheepfold. Nobody's coming through the door unnoticed. We're going to guard. People every once in a while, you know, they'll, they'll give me a phone call and I go, you know, I, one of your elders has given me the once over. Under my breath, I say, praise God. And then I have to explain why in a very kind way. You know, if we don't know you, if you just show up and all of a sudden you're wandering around chasing after some of the girls in here and you're a guy, uh, we're gonna follow you like a hawk. And, uh, if we find you're up to no good, we're gonna give you the left boot of fellowship out the door. Uh, if you come in and you, you think that you can come after the children in this church, we have gatekeepers. And when they find you, they will make sure that you know that there are gatekeepers here regarding the things that God's doing we have God's precious lambs we have his things we've been entrusted with his resources the most precious of which is his people and so gatekeepers were assigned you know what good's a strong city uh, if the easiest way to get into the city is left open amen that's true in our lives Sometimes we take all this time in building up our walks in the Lord, and then we let down our guard in the simplest of areas. You know, that casual conversation that happens between two people who are not married to one another in an environment that's probably not helpful or beneficial. We need to keep our guards up. We need to remember that the enemy would love to tear your marriage apart. The enemy would love to destroy your children. The enemy would love to destroy you, and he does not play fair. And he is very likely to send someone through an open gate if he can find one. So guard the gates. Guard the gates of your heart. Guard the gates of your mind. We guard the gates of this church. We guard our own homes. We guard each other's homes. So we've seen this was a community effort, amen? Amen. This was this was the family, in essence, the family of God, working to further the kingdom. And to do that, we need to protect all of us. We need to stand watch over each other. The gates were open in the morning, and as they did so, if they opened them too early and just walked away from them, any enemy could creep in. We need to be careful about the things of God. There's a picture in the life of King Hezekiah to where he shows the enemy the temple treasures. What a dumb thing to do. Need to make sure that you're guarding the things of God. We don't express to everybody all that this church is doing because we don't want to give the enemy opportunity. I couldn't care less if there's an article in the Mountain News about the civic things that we do in this community. I don't really care. That's not why we do it. It doesn't matter to me if everybody in the community knows what we do. What matters to me is that we do what God's called us to do and that we protect what God is doing. And so we watch over. We see to it that the Lord is, is glorified by the way we take care of his ministry. Another group is mentioned here. It's called watches in some, uh, in some uh, translations, but it's really guards. And so the people had worked in some areas of the wall. And so not just at the gates, But in a general sense, you know, when the elders of this church are here, and there are many of them, they're on guard. They're not just posted at the gate. They're posted throughout the ministry to see to it that nothing slips by unnoticed. And whether that's some heretical thing that maybe is being taught by somebody that's just ignorant Or whether that's someone that is obviously here for the wrong reason. Uh, It's a tragedy sometimes that I think church is kind of getting that, that, well, we're just flying mode and, you know, we're going so fast we don't have time to to watch after what God's already doing. That's not to say that sheep are this church's sheep. They're God's sheep. But they're in God's sheepfold and this particular chunk of the sheepfold God has given us the privilege of guarding. And so we take that seriously. We want to be faithful to that task. Christian parents, you need to guard your homes. You need to guard what your children watch on television. You need to guard what movies they go to. You need to guard what friends they hang out with. It is astounding to me, Christian parents who just throw their hands up in the air, well, they're just going to do whatever they want to do anyway. You're not a faithful guard if that's you. You need to rethink that very seriously because you have been given the task of raising your children in the training and the admonition of the Lord, and you can't do that if you turn them over to the enemy to watch them for a while. If you don't know where your kids are, if you let them go to parties, that you haven't got a clue what's going to happen, shame on you. You need to guard your family against the attacks of the enemy, and that means being watchful. That means you care about the little things. And I want to make sure that I'm very clear here. It's up to us. God's given us wisdom. God's given us knowledge and understanding. And you ought not be turning it over to the school district to raise your kids in how they ought to view human sexuality. You ought not to be leaning on that person who watches them because you're at work to determine where their morals and their scruples come from. That is our job as the body of Christ, as the church, and very specifically as parents. We need to be on guard. The next thing that happens, and this is a very long portion, we're going to try and blast through it, because there's really several things we want to draw from it, but we're drawing from it a very large picture, which is what I believe was intended here. I'm going to preface what I'm now going to say. There are two lists. There's another one in Ezra. Basically, the first 60-some verses of the book of Ezra, this particular book, the book of Nehemiah, are extremely similar. But you have to remember the day and time that it was written. Genealogy was everything. If you couldn't prove who you were and where you came from, if it was unknown, you were an outcast. And very specifically for the Jewish people, there were several tribes from which if you wanted to be, uh, say, for instance, a part of those who served in the temple, you had to prove your lineage back through Aaron. And so these things were extremely important to the Jewish people, and they were also extremely important to the furtherance of God's chosen people, the Jewish people, to making sure that the lineage ultimately of guess who could be proven? That would be Jesus, who is the Christ. And so there's great detail given here. And at that time, verse 4 says, the city was large and spacious. Now, given the surrounding territory, that would have been a large and spacious city. To give you an idea, the Temple Mount is about 27.6 acres. An acre is 205 roughly feet square. So it's not a huge city. It's a relatively tiny city. But for 2,500 years ago, big place. Big deal. It was large and spacious, but the population was small, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. So here's what you need to know. Basically, that was a walled compound with pretty much nobody in it yet. There was a very small group of people that had come back. It's been estimated perhaps just a a few thousand uh, completed this task. And now God built the city for the purpose of bringing together his people. The temple had already been rebuilt under Zerubbabel, so the temple's there. Nothing like what we would come to know as Herod's temple. This was a much more crude structure, existed on the temple mount. And so God gave me the idea to call together all the nobles, the leaders of the city, along with the ordinary citizens for registration. Why would he do that? Because everybody matters. In God's kingdom, everybody matters. I don't care who you are tonight. I don't care where you came from. don't care what sin you may have been engaged in. don't care where your life has taken you. You matter to God. And if you matter to God, you're supposed to matter to God's people. And one of the faults, I believe, of the church sometimes is not making sure that people understand that. Everybody matters. We may have different functions. We have different gifts. There are all kinds of things that maybe I can do that you can't, but the opposite is also true. And so everybody matters. For I had found that the genealogical record of those who had first returned to Judah, and this is where it was written there. And so he's referring actually to the list that Ezra, the scribe, wrote down. And so you can compare these two lists. There are some differences in them. Let me explain to you why. Not everyone, for the purpose of of the registration, is listed here, because you're going to see some huge numbers when we get through this. Not every name is listed. So it makes absolute sense that certain groups of people may have been in one list and not in another. They're simply trying to do as best a job as they can at the time of making sure that there is an accounting primarily from the ten different places that the people come from, the specific jobs that they had or the regions and things that they did, so that we would understand that as the city was built and as it was then occupied, that all twelve of the tribes would have a representation of people inside of now this walled city called Jerusalem. And so here is the list of the Jewish exiles uh, of the Providences who returned from their captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon, and I'm reading from the New Living because it gives a very clear understanding of the numbers of people and and their basic places that they came from. And it says as they returned and from the other towns of Judah uh, where they originally lived. And so their leaders were Zerubbabel. So this is going back almost a hundred years. And this is, not, this is not a list of the people who were just necessarily currently in view. This is a list of all of the people who had either either come back with Zerubbabel or had come back with Nehemiah, but they were in the region and they represented, in essence, the remnant of the Jewish people who was left after these uh, nearly 100 years that are referenced here. And so there were Joshua, Nehemiah, and this is not the same Nehemiah, by the way, uh, because if he came back with Zerubbabel, that would have been almost a 100 years earlier. Uh, Zeriah, Reliah, uh, Nakamiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, and you can get the names of the next group. Down to verse 8, And it says the family of Parash. There was 2,172 of them. And Zepdetiah, uh there were 372 of those folks. And as you look now down this list that goes all the way down uh, to verse 38, He lists the citizens of all these places. In verse 38, there's an interesting thing, because you have a city that no one knows a thing about, and its basic understanding of the name of the city means missing ones. So it may well be that this is actually a type of a group of people, and there were 3,930 of those, Uh, but you'll notice that great detail is taken. Even some of these groups as small as 40, 50 people are mentioned. Everybody mattered. didn't matter where you were from. Uh, there is a very huge cross-section of all 12 tribes here. And so you get down to verse 38, uh, the citizens of Sana, and there were 3,930 of them. And then it goes on in verse 39, and these are the priests who returned from the exile, uh, the family of Jedediah through the line of Yeshua, 973 from the family of Emer a uh, 1052 of those and so on and so forth uh, all the way down to verse 44 including the singers of the family of Asaph and so you have the priests you have the singers in the temple great detail is taken here to make sure that everybody understands that what the Jewish people were before they went into captivity in Babylon they now have represented every single one of those groups, including the Levitical order, including those of the family of Asaph, who would have been uh, the worship team, if you will, uh, of the Jewish people. And so the gatekeepers of the family of Shalom, Atter, Talamon, Akub, Atia, and Shobai, there was 138 of those. It's interesting, that's a small group. And the reason being, these were the people that actually stuck around the longest. They were the last to leave. When they were taken into captivity, these were kind of the holdouts. And so it's showing that as you dedicate your life to the Lord, and as you do God's things, God's way, even if there's not very many of you left, God still has his eye on you. And he goes on to the descendants following the temple servants who returned from exile, And he lists a huge number of them. The descendants of the servants of King Solomon who returned from the exile. So you can see that there are categories of people that are each named in succession. All of the temple servants in verse 60 and the descendants of Solomon's servants numbered 392. And so it's interesting because it's estimated at the time that this, this, this book was actually compiled, which was a couple of hundred years after the events themselves, uh, that by that time the Jewish people still only numbered about 100,000 or so. So this represents roughly the, the population of those who could trace their lineage back to the, to the original 12 tribes. And so this is a very elite group that God is painstakingly preserved. And it's interesting in the book of, of Isaiah that in fact one of Isaiah's son, uh, Malher Shabbaz, uh, was actually his name actually means a remnant remains or a remnant returns. And so even in, in the children of Isaiah, there was kind of this picture that even though it looked really bad and the people had been really disobedient, that God still had his hand on them and one day he would restore them. And so by the time we get to the New Testament times, and Paul, as he writes the, the letter to the Roman church, and he finally says that one day all Israel will be saved, uh, there was a point in time in history when it didn't look like there was going to be an Israel. Think about who these people are. Before the Babylonians were the Assyrians in roughly 732 B.C., so some 150 years before the Babylonians, the Assyrians came And they wiped out literally 10 of the 12 tribes. They took some of them captive, but enough of them escaped that by the time we get back to this place, which is now uh, nearly 350 years later, there were a few of each tribe that managed to survive whose lineages can be traced back uh, so that you still have a united uh, children of Israel and all of the tribes represented. Why is that important? Because if you know your Bible pretty well, the book of Revelation says in the very last days that there's going to be how many? There's going to be some of every tribe, amen? they are going to be evangelists during the tribulation. Well, they have, they have to be able to, to say that I'm rightly of the tribe of Levi, or I'm the tribe of Benjamin, I'm the tribe of Dan, in order to do that. And so if they could not, by these lists, maintain their lineage all the way until the time of Christ and then pushing forward into our day and time, then God's word would be proven to be untrue. And so these lists are important. Another group that returned this time from the towns of Telma and Tel Harsha Cherub Adon. And if you look at these cities on a map, you're going to find out that this is pretty much uh, the Middle East as we know it today, including almost all of Lebanon, nearly all of Syria, part of Turkey, all of Jordan, the Sinai Peninsula, and the northern part of Egypt, along with what is now Israel and the Palestinian territories. So this represented a very, very large area, but given that large area, it's an extremely small group of people. To give you an idea, the population of Jerusalem today is about 800,000. The population of Tel Aviv is a little over 2 million so so to come up with 40-something thousand people uh, and put them into this one area, this would have been a very densely populated place in the middle of nowhere with nothing but little tiny villages all around it. And so this group was descended of the families of Delilah and Tobiah and Nekodiah. uh They were 642 people. Three families of priests, Hobiah, Hakos, and Barlazai. Uh, these guys also returned, and, and it says that Berezelai had married a woman who had descended from Berezelai of Gilead and had taken her family name. So they took great care to name some of these very obscure places to make sure that it, it, and we get to our day and time, we could go, okay, well, let's trace these people back. Where did they come from? Where did they go to? And they searched their names from the genealogical records, but were not found. Notice this. This is how important it was. So they were disqualified from serving as priests. They took it very seriously that you could prove your lineage. If Jesus Christ is not of the tribe of Judah, then he cannot be the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? So he has to be of the kingly line of Judah. And and so these genealogies are are perhaps as important uh, as anything else that gives us detail about the Old Testament times. And the governor, verse 65 says, told them not to eat of the priest's share of the food or from the sacrifices until a priest could consult with the Lord about the matter by using the Urim and the Thummim. In other words, they would take a couple of dyes, one black, one white, and they would throw them together. And if they got the right numbers, then they would be able to tell whether it was true or false. And so verse 66, it says, and so the total of 42,360 people, returned to judah now remember what judah is judah is not just a tribe it's collectively what the southern kingdom was known the northern kingdom was known as israel ten tribes resided there and then in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom two tribes and you know which ones they are they were the tribe of judah and the tribe of levi because they served in the temple and so you have uh, now that they had returned to Judah, a geographic location, not just the children of, and in addition to the 7,337 servants, uh, the 245 singers, both men and women, they took along with them uh, 376 horses, 245 mules, uh, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's a whole lot of beasts when you look at the size of that city. I mean, you are literally talking something that's less than a mile long. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny area. All these people, their animals, more than likely were outside of the walls of the city most of the time, at least during the day. And so as you look at these things, uh, interestingly enough, when you go back through the archaeological record of the diggings that were done in David's city, the city of Zion, which is the part that is south of the Temple Mount, that's down here called Othel, the Valley Gate, the Water Gate, the Dungate, and the Fountain Gate in that area. Uh, in that area, of these names that are named by name here, 83 of them have been found in various pieces of artifacts that have been found in David City. That is a huge amount of archaeological evidence. Uh, If you were to go back through any type of civilization and someone was named by name and you actually found their name, even finding one of them would be gigantic. To find 80 of them is absolutely unbelievable with regard to what history says. And interestingly enough, all found within the confines of the wall that's assigned to and dated to the time of Jeremiah to Nehemiah. So there's a very small window of archaeological time in which all of these names have been found. They've been found on bulla. That's those little clay blobs that are put on letters or stamped to approve things. Or uh, at times they would mark a sack that happened to be yours that maybe had grain in it, those types of things, on pottery and on stone inscriptions. And so of these names... This is a monumental piece of archaeological evidence that provides really a living link back to the history of the Jewish people. So extremely important for validating your Bible. Just like our modern cities, uh, this modern city was rather a melting pot. And so in this case, it was a melting pot for the entire nation of Israel. So all of the Jewish people were represented here. And so as these leaders returned with first with Zerubbabel and then with uh, Nehemiah, what returned with them was also their family records. They were pretty meticulous about keeping those things. And so uh, this Hebrew word for this group that came from Sana'a, uh, there in verse 38 that I mentioned before, uh, one of the translations for that Hebrew word is actually also hated. And so... These were kind of the outcast. It's interesting to me that they took the time to mention a group of people that were actually hated. Now, we don't really know why that may be appropriate to them. But in looking at some of the names, uh, it does appear that they were of the lower classes. It does appear that they came from groups of people that when you would trace their history back, it's kind of like now we kind of wish you'd have forgotten about that particular group. But God doesn't forget about that particular group. And I draw your attention to it this way. You know, sometimes we're prone as human beings to say, you know, God can't ever use me. You know, I mean, I come from this background or that background or, you know, I wasted a lot of my time or a lot of my life or I engaged in this behavior or that behavior. And I did these things before I came to Christ. And I am so tarnished. I am so worked over by the world that I just don't matter to God. God looks at me and he just doesn't care. I love the fact that this group is mentioned because God took time to remember even those who the world hated, who the world looked at and said, they don't matter. They come from places that we wish would just fall off the face of the earth. You know, we can liken it in our day and time to maybe you, you, you've been down on Canoe and you're you're going to Costco to give away five hundred dollars for a couple of carts of groceries, or and you and you pull on to Tippecanoe, and they're in the media, are those they're the same guys, they're the same ladies. You you see them all over town. You see them up by Walmart Walmart one day, and they're down on by Costco the next, and you maybe bump into them over at the car wash, or you know, trying to get your windows clean before you go wash your car or whatever. They're they're people that the world looks at and says. Worthless, don't care. Can I remind you, God definitely cares. And if God cares, so should we. There's no such thing as throwaway people. Not of any shape, not any size, not any color, not any geographic region. You know, sometimes we're guilty. Sometimes I'm guilty. Of making it seem like, you know, the, maybe the Arab countries God is, you know, not concerned about. Man, he's concerned about every last Persian person. He cares about the Taliban. He, he absolutely cares about, he cared about the Nazis. He, he cares about everybody, everywhere. And of course he doesn't want us to continue in those behaviors that are destructive or damaging to us or anyone else. But he cares about everybody. And when I look at these passages, I'm thankful for that. Because there are times I can look at my own life and go, God, I I don't even know how I got here. This has got to be a miracle from you. I don't deserve to be where I am, doing what I'm doing. And so some of these folks, as you remember, couldn't prove their genealogies. That was a real bad thing at the time. The total number of this congregation, if you combine the two lists, uh, they're in Ezra and here in Nehemiah is well over 42,000 people. Now think about it. They all move into this new city. It instantaneously becomes a thriving metropolis, in essence. It's got some problems, though. When they had returned, they really returned to nothing. The Babylonians kind of had a scorched earth policy. The Persians weren't a whole lot better, and the Assyrians before both of them were even worse. And so they were building this from the ground up. And I love the fact that there's every kind of gift known to man mentioned in this group of people. You had the, the tent makers. You had the singers. You had those who were into banking. You had those who were the Levites. You had the temple servants. You had all kinds of different people, all with different gifts, all going to one place to function, in essence, in a way that was pleasing to God. And it pretty much describes the way the church is supposed to function. Amen? That, that we, oh, we, we don't look at the outside. We don't look at the vessels. We don't say, well, you're from this city, or you're from that city, or you're this color, or you have that accent, or you do this, or you do that, and these guys are important, but you're not. This is a body of Christ picture here. That there's this tremendous unity that happens within tremendous diversity. And it's important that we see that. And so when you look at this, chapter, sometimes it's easy to just kind of skip over it. And and I skipped over the names, not because they're not important or that I can't read them, but for the sake of time, uh, you can go back through and do your own study on the individual names if you want. I felt like the Lord tonight for us would just simply have us acknowledge what's happening here. And that is the Lord had a very huge plan to bless people through this building project that's now complete. He wanted to glorify his name. He wanted people strong in him. And so he gave them a place to do it. And he brought the gifts in the people to accomplish that. These kind of pioneers of faith, if you will, that have now come back. They're a picture for us, too, because there are really two groups of people. There are people who are inside the city and people who are outside the city. There are people who are named as in and there are people who are not named, which are out. It's pretty much the same choices we have today. Amen? You're either in or out. You either receive and believe or you deny and die. That's the deal. You've got two places. You can, you can be destined for heaven. You can be destined for hell. The choice is yours. In this case, by coming to God's holy city, by returning in faith, because it wasn't like there was farmland around here. If you look at Jerusalem today, you're going to see it's pretty much a pile of rocks. I mean, grass doesn't grow unless you bring in topsoil. When you think of the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, most of you have gardens that are much richer in your yard if you have a couple of trees. I mean, it's just there's a few olive trees and that's it. So this wasn't some wonderfully glorious place. They had to come by faith to this city which was constructed by God, which was for the purpose of glorifying God and worshiping God, and they came without knowing what the net result would be pretty much describes your experience of walking by faith in Christ Jesus. We don't know exactly all of the component parts. We just have to come and we have to be in him. So it's a picture of salvation, just like the ark was a picture of salvation. Noah's telling everybody, hey, it's going to get bad. It's not going to be good. You need to be in because if you're out, it's bad. Same thing here. Pick up now in verse 70 with me. And some of the family leaders gave gifts to the work. Now, I want you to notice something. I can tell you how I know when people are actually engaged in what they declare with their lips. They hold nothing back. Sometimes people ask me, you know, well, you know, with with this whole thing of giving or tithing or whatever you want to call it, you know, I I really don't see any place in the New Testament that, that we have to do that. If that's your attitude, then you don't get it. Because you're right, you don't have to give. God doesn't need your money. But if you love the Lord, then you are going to give to the things that God's doing. And Jesus told us why. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you cannot be so disassociated from the things of God that you don't care about it getting done so much so that you don't support it. So in a sense, what God is saying here, I'm going to give you one very difficult way to show exactly how committed you are to these things, and that is you are going to give to the work that's going to be done. Some of these folks came back, you're going to see, very, very wealthy from Babylon. Some of the leaders came back with an awful lot of money. Was it theirs or was it God's? My Bible says that everything on this planet belongs to the Lord. If it's in my bank account, it still belongs to the Lord. If it's the car that I drive, it's still the Lord's car. My house is God's house. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. And so the question is, when you get to these places in the Lord to where God is doing a work, you can tell the people who are actually desirous to see it accomplished because they give to that end faithfully and so when someone comes and says well you know i just like to go to church but the whole money thing i don't you can't be disassociated from the things that god is doing and 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 expect that god's gonna do the things that he wants to do in spite of the fact that you're not committed to it financially these guys were committed financially notice what it says some of the family leaders gave to the work the governor gave to the treasury 1000 gold coins 50 gold basins, 530 robes for the priest. Other leaders gave to the treasury a total of 20,000 gold coins, some 2,750 pounds of silver for the work. And the rest of the people, notice this, the rest of the people, that means everybody, basically. It doesn't, doesn't say that there was just an elite group that had a bunch. It says the rest of the people, including all of them, gave some 20,000 gold coins, about 2,500 pounds of silver, 67 robes for the priest. And so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and some of the common people settled, notice this, now we get the picture, near Jerusalem, because you are not fitting 42,000 people inside of that city. It cannot happen. And so they gave to the work of the Lord, which would have been in the temple in that area, because that was why this was done for the Lord. And then they settled in around the the city itself. The rest of the people returned to their own towns and throughout Israel. So they came to the work. It doesn't say that all 42,000 of them stayed in the one place. It says they came, they saw to the project and then they went back, and there's an interesting spiritual lesson here. Uh, you can support the things of God without actually being there, and I encourage you to do so. We do that here in this church. You guys actually financially support people that you've never actually even met all over the world. You wouldn't know them if you ran over them in the street. You just, <clears throat> man, I just ran over one of our missionaries. The thing is, you're faithful to God, and as you're faithful to God, God does what He wants. And that's what we endeavor to do here in this church. We want to see God do what He wants. And so our job is to be those two things, remember? Faithful, fear God. Faithful, fear God. If we're faithful and we fear God, then we're engaged in the things that He wants to do, and we do what He asks of us. And so these guys, uh, these women who... Made, made sure that this project actually got done. They've now completed it. What began with a, with a grave concern in chapter one, what led to the construction project in chapters two and three, what made for that conflict that we saw in chapters five and six and really part of seven. Now it's time in the rest of the book of Nehemiah is the whole point to this. You see, if they'd just come and built a city, and if they'd just come and given money, if they'd maybe built an aqueduct, or they did some nice farmland, or built some terraces, those types of things, it would have been a good social thing to do, but that's not why God did it. And so from chapter 8 to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we find the real reason. And that's to consecrate the people unto the Lord. That's to bring them back to God. That's to make sure that they're serving the Lord God of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, and that their lives were pleasing to the Lord. Without building this city, they got no place to worship. Now there was a temple there, but Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the, the Arabs, the people that surrounded them, were going to take this place over, and it wasn't going to be there for very long. So they needed the city. They needed the construction project. They needed to be able to protect the people that were inside it, that were serving the Lord. They needed to be able to to have this city, in essence, a a defensible place. They also needed the gold and the silver and the animals and everything else to assure uh, that it wasn't just this little isolated outpost in the middle of nowhere that three weeks later they would have to go rebuild it again. God protects what he does. And you can tell when God is in things because they last When God is in something, it's not just a flash in the pan. And I will share with you, I've seen a lot of well-meaning, zealous people that go out to accomplish something for the Lord that lasts about 15, 20 minutes, and then they come back and nothing gets accomplished for God. That's neither well-pleasing to the Lord, and it surely doesn't do anything to build the faith of the people. If God's in it, it lasts. It may last for a season, but it lasts. And it's something that's tangible. You can look at it. The neighbors, remember where we started? Looked at the city and said, God did that. That's not those feeble Jews. That wasn't the accusation of Sanballat. Remember what he said? If a fox goes up on that wall, it'll come crumbling down. God built that wall. God built that city. I want to give you a handful of little takeaways, things that you can, that you can look at as we close up tonight. Nehemiah saw this project through the eyes of God. You need to ask yourself that question. When you endeavor to do anything for the Lord, look at it from his perspective. Because humanly, if you looked at that project, if Nehemiah had said, forget it, I'm staying here in Babylon. I got it real good right here in Babylon. He would have never gone. You have to see things through God's perspective. The building of the wall was God's work. Need needed to see it from God's perspective. A second thing, Nehemiah throughout the project up to this point has kept his eyes focused on God. Amen? Not on man, not on Sanballat, not on Tobiah, not on the opposition, not on the nasty, mean things that have been said. He kept his eyes on the Lord. And as he does that, as he focuses, it enables him to stay on task. Because if you start chasing around on every rabbit trail of every, every accusation of somebody who thinks you ought to be doing what you're doing, Some other way, or maybe not at all, you will get zip done for the kingdom. If I even had to respond to every single not so nice letter, every accusational thing, if I had to chase down every person that somebody came to me and said, Did you know what they said about you? I would spend all of my time trying to chase down all the things of the people who said something about me, or my family, or this church. And I wouldn't get a thing done for the kingdom. A third thing. uh, Nehemiah heavily relied upon not just facts, but discernment from the Lord. You see, the facts actually said, this is dumb. This is stupid. Don't do it. That's what the facts said. But the discernment that God gave Nehemiah said, by me, through me, the Lord God, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You see, his discernment was the voice inside of him that was the Holy Spirit speaking to him said, no problem, you can do it. Keep steady on. You see, those who seek to, to defeat the kingdom of God often come in sheepskins. They, they come very well disguised. They don't look like the enemies of God. And they come with things just like Tobiah with an open letter. And He's like, wow, man, you know, if you... Go out and do this, I mean, the whole world's going to come against you. He needed discernment to defeat that. A fourth thing Nehemiah's ultimate decisions were not based on public opinion and political correctness. He sought to please God alone. He did not sit there and put together a focus group, he didn't come up with a bunch of you know, things, it's like, well, you know, I better ask about another 75 people to see if they agree with me. If you really believe that God's spoken, then you have the responsibility to simply go get it done in his strength. And you don't have to ask a whole bunch of people whether it's going to be okay or not. If you've heard from the Lord, you need to go do what God's told told you to do. And so he was seeking God's will with all of his heart and he got God's voice on it. A fifth thing. Nehemiah was tough. He stood his ground. He fought hard. He didn't let the fact that there was opposition sway him in any way, shape, or form. He just simply said, why should I come down off the wall and come talk to you? I'm not going to the plains of Ono and, you know, hang out with you guys. I got work to do. He was tough. He was decisive. A sixth thing. Nehemiah gave glory to the Lord. Nehemiah didn't stand up on the wall and go, Look what I did. Isn't this wall awesome? The most beautiful fortified city in the entire Middle East, and I'm on top of it. Without me, they'd have never gotten it done. Yeah, feeling pretty good. He gave glory to God. Man, let us always give glory to God. This church wouldn't exist without the Lord. The only reason we're here is because of God. The only reason we continue to be here is because of God. Three very quick things and we'll end. Satan's attacks are always well-timed. He knows exactly when to hit you. And because he knows when to hit you, you need to be aware that he's going to hit you. Because you aren't going to know when he's going to hit you. He's really good at timing those attacks but he's going to hit you. Nehemiah knew that. He knew that his enemy was not flesh and blood. He knew his enemy was not Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arabs. His enemy was Satan. And those guys could go no further than their boss had instructed them. And so he fought with a spiritual sense of victory. An eighth thing. Your enemy, our enemy, Nehemiah's enemy is a liar and he never hesitates to lie about anyone and everything. You're never going to get the truth out of the enemy. And so you need to have your liar detection ears up. Nehemiah did. He's like, these dudes are out to kill me. And finally, people when they're influenced by God, are not going to use the devil's tools. So if you find somebody who's using rumor, accusation, slander, gossip, innuendo, veiled threats, remember all those things from the previous chapters? They are not of the Lord. Nehemiah knew that he could look at the tactics and go, I'm not hearing that, because what you're saying is how the enemy works, not how God's working. You're not coming here to build up. You're not coming here to edify. You haven't come here to help in the things that God's told us to do. You've come here with the express purpose of destroying what God's already doing. And God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. Once he has spoken and he's begun to work, it's our job to be faithful and to fear God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that tonight each one of us that's here matters. And God, the things that you're doing in us is, is staggering. It's amazing. And we pray that we'd never lose that sense of awe. And in these things, God, would we stand fast. Recognize the attacks of the enemy when they come. And Lord, as they do, that as you build the walls... Uh, We would be found faithful as you call us to the tasks uh, that, Lord, we would fear you. And, and, Lord, that fear just simply means to reverence you and put you in that place that you alone belong. There's one Lord, and and we want to serve you. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for building your holy city in us as individuals, placing us as living stones upon that wall that is your kingdom. And we pray that, God, as you work in these last days, that we would be found guarding the gates, that we would be found watching the walls, that we would be found steadfast and movable, always abounding in your work, knowing that that labor is not in vain. The walls are going up, and one day the new Jerusalem will drop from heaven. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this evening. Pray that you would now bless us and fill us with your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen and amen.